Welcome to Faith Is, the place where we have faith, because we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And so we stretch each other in God's direction. We work to develop absolute confidence in God because God wants us to trust Him. It's not so much about all the things that we get right, because there's always plenty of things that we struggle with, but it's important that we trust God. After all, God summed it up for us in the words of Jesus that we are to love God with all we've got and our neighbor as ourself. And part of being able to do that is faith, absolute confidence in God's trustworthiness, because that is demonstrated by love. Well, we could go on and on about that, and we probably will before the program's over. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and I'm so glad you joined us today. I am um, always kind of amazed at the fact that people actually listen to, to what I have to say. And I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, where they've been listening to what I have to say for a very long time. Uh, people are often surprised when they find out that I've been the pastor of, of our church here since January of 1997. And I don't know that any of us set out f- for that to happen, but it has happened. And, and so I celebrate another anniversary this month. But it causes me to stop and think and to remind myself, and we can remind each other that it's kind of amazing that people actually listen. And, and along that line of listening, I, I saw, an, and I'm not reflecting what he said, and maybe we'll revisit this. I think it's probably worth thinking about some more. But I read a, a brief article this morning. It was really on the book of Revelation and some ideas from that and how to approach that. But part of what the author was suggesting is that we need to reexamine from time to time this idea of listening listening. And, and it got me thinking that people have been listening to what I have to say, and and I try to have something worthwhile to say, of course, but isn't it remarkable? But then he went on to say, not so much about isn't it amazing that people listen to what we have to say, but he went on to say that, that in a world full of voices, and often we are part of that, and here I am talking and I'm part of it, but he said in a world of, of voices that we need to learn to listen. And it's important for us to, uh, my description, not his, to kind of step back and, and remind ourselves to listen. And he used a little bit of the uh, statement from the book of Revelation where it says to, that we should hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And, and that's a listening idea. But it got me to thinking in a world where we're all so quick to give our opinions I'm not excusing myself. We're all so quick to tell each other what we think. We've also gotten kind of quick to tell God how things ought to be. And and that's something we need to pause and think about. You know, it's not up for me to, to tell God, here's how to do things. Now, he listens to me, and, and like you, I talked to him about how I want things to be from time to time. I had a little brief conversation about that just the other day. And, and I don't at all think he objects to that. I, I can't find any evidence in the scriptures that we can't have a conversation with him. In fact, the disciples had conversations with Jesus all the time. 
And sometimes Jesus was kind of blunt with them. And we need to listen because sometimes God wants to be blunt with us. So wherever you are, whatever you're thinking about, one of the things I want to encourage you to do is just listen and and hear what people say. I, I appreciate you listening to hear what I have to say, and we'll talk about some important things today. But in general, let's let's think about this idea of listening so that we don't forget to hear what's going on around us. I'm sure we've all had the experience of going through some kind of encounter with someone or being in a group situation and and going away from that, maybe it's at home, maybe it's at work, maybe it's at a church, could be a Bible study. We go away from that and and from time to time we just kind of stop to remind ourselves, you know, I don't think I really heard what was being said by maybe another person there. Or we go away, we say, you know, going forward, I need to make sure I really listen to what this person is saying. Because one thing that we know because we live inside our own heads is that we want somebody to listen to us. So what a great gift it is when we listen to someone else. And I just thought we ought to start out today thinking about that. Uh, It's not because I'm trying to get you to listen to what I say. I'm really grateful and amazed that you do listen. And and I appreciate that. And I hope you find it useful. I don't want to just be talking to be talking. That's never been my desire at all. I'm not that much of a talker. You probably wouldn't believe that listening to the program because you probably say, wow, he talks a lot. Well, I hope I have good things to say, not just talking to be talking. We all know people that do that. But I think that in this world of so much noise going on and people so desperate to be heard, let's just make sure we listen. Listen to God. Listen to each other. Listen to the people that nobody listens to. It's just a word to the wise, I think, that as God's people, we want to listen. And Along that line, let me remind you, we often talk about reading the Bible, and I do and you do, and and that's the most common way that most people gain insight from the Bible is to read, and I support that. I think that's great, but I also think along the idea of listening that if reading is a challenge for you or if you find yourself struggling to sit down and find time to read, then consider listening. Get a Bible, an audible Bible of some kind, and listen. There are many of them around. You can find them. They're in a variety of English translations. But maybe you will be surprised at the difference in listening to the Bible as opposed to reading it. I have found that to be true. I still prefer reading. I'm not changing my preference necessarily. But I have found that listening is awfully useful, and and you might find that too. So, remind yourself to listen, to listen to God, to listen to the Bible, to listen to other people, to make sure we hear what we need to be be hearing, because that'll help us when we need to be speaking. Now, along the idea of the Bible, there's a couple things that we've been doing at church and, and I think I mentioned this. I'm not sure if I have on the program. Maybe I've mentioned it so much you're tired of hearing it, but I'll keep mentioning probably. 
But this is the year of the Bible at our church. For the last few years, we have asked God, and he has given us some idea of a theme, something to think about. And this year, when I began to to think about that and to pray about that, it was almost immediate that this needed to be the year of the Bible. We've seen so many ideas crop up, and so many people want to talk to God and tell God and tell us what ought to be, that it seemed absolutely clear to me that God was saying, let's make sure we get back to focusing on what the Bible says. It's not because I think we've drifted so much at our church or any of the people that I know. It's just important for us to not drift. And we've seen that, and you probably have too, in the wider Christian world. And so we want to make sure we don't drift, and we want to make sure that we continue to value what God has said in the Bible. Because after all, it is God speaking to us. And when God speaks, we ought to listen. So part of that is I've been talking about various things about the Bible, trying to help people understand the Bible as a book, as a collection of books, different things like that. And this past week, I came across a list of the best-selling Bible translations in 2022. I thought that was kind of interesting. The best-selling Bible translations. Now, I don't typically notice lists like that. I guess because for a long time there have been a few Bible translations, English translations, that have been popular and the others haven't been really competing for that. But this list had some that I really wasn't expecting. I really wasn't terribly surprised by the list. And and I'm not terribly concerned that one English translation ranks higher than another. In fact, one of the translations on the list is not an English translation. It's a Spanish translation. But I thought I'd go through this list a little bit and encourage you, if you've never really explored another English translation than the one you're currently using, maybe that would be helpful for you to do that because they just, they don't say different things. It's not different versions of the Bible. So it's not at all. You're looking for one that tells you what you want to hear. That's not it at all. What you're trying to find is a Bible that that helps you understand what God is saying and that you will use and benefit from. Because if you won't read it, if you won't listen to it, it's really like not having a Bible at all. So that's why I encourage you to check out another translation, because it just might be a fresh voice to you, a fresh way of looking at things. So no surprise, really, the number one best-selling translation of the Bible in 2022 was the New International Version, often referred to as the NIV. We use those shorthand things often, not to be confusing, it's just kind of the vocabulary of of people that talk about the Bible. But the New International Version's been around for a while, it went through an update a few years ago, and it's still very well received across the church You will always hear people, it doesn't matter which translation we talk about, who are for or against these translations for one reason or another. But the NIV has had widespread acceptance. If you're ever in doubt about what English translation someone is using, almost always you guess NIV and you'll be right. The second best-selling English translation is the English Standard Version, or referred to as the ESV. It's not nearly as widely accepted as the NIV, but it has a lot of people who like it. I've seen a lot of people speak well of it. Again, there are detractors, 
But by and large, these English translations will help you know God. And yes, if you study deeply and seriously and carefully, you will want to consult other tools besides just one English translation of the Bible. But the English Standard Version is one you might want to take a look at. I'll confess I'm not familiar with it. I've looked at it only very little. It's just not one that appeals to me based upon what I've read about it. But that doesn't mean it's bad. That's just me. We all have our personal preferences. But number two on the list was English Standard Version. Number three, and this one surprised me a little bit. Number three on the list was the New Living Translation. Now, I like the New Living Translation. I have nothing against it. I just didn't really expect that it was that popular. I didn't realize that. So it was a kind of a revelation to me. But you may want to look at the New Living Translation. We've used it for several years now as the Bible that we read from in our morning services here at our church, Diplomat Wesleyan Church. We always, every Sunday, read from the Old Testament, read from the Psalms, read from one of the letters, one of the epistles in the New Testament, and a portion from the Gospel. And we use the New Living Translation. I started using that because it's a good translation, well-respected, but it's also easy to read. And so I found that our readers who volunteer and help us with that could read that a little bit more easily. It's not that it's free of uh, big words or or the names that the Bible uses. That's, that's not it at all. It's just the way the language flows seems to make it easier and, and more accessible. So you might want to check out the New Living Translation. For quite a while, I've used number four on the list, the Christian Standard Bible, often called the CSB. So we have the NIV, the ESV, the NLT, and now the CSB. Yeah, we got a lot of alphabets. But the Christian Standard Bible has been very well received, as you can tell by its listing in number four. It is advertised as the best readable translation and the most accurate. So what it means by that is they say that that translation, at least the people that produced it, say that it's the best combination of readability and accuracy. And I like it. I I've, have enjoyed it. And I would encourage you to take a look at that one. It's a, it's a good one. And by the way, I'm not saying go out and buy all of these. You can sample these online. Most of them, I didn't check all of them, but I think probably all of the ones that are on this list, you can sample online. If the entire text of the Bible is not available on a, an electronic basis, some digital platform, uh, portions of it will be enough for you to get an idea. And if you, if you um, have the Bible app, you'll discover that I think all of these, with the possible exception of the Spanish translation, are on that Bible app. I'm not sure it might be. I didn't, didn't check. So Christian Standard Bible is number four. Number five is the King James Version. And number six is the New King James Version. We can talk about those together. Some people, they just, they just like the King James Version, and I would not discourage you from reading that if that's the one you like. It's the one that I started out with. It was the only one for years until the NIV came out. There were a couple of others that, that were kind of niche English translations, but they weren't really as widely respected. People kind of dabbled with them as though they were a curiosity. These that we have today are much more serious, and they are valuable and serious translations of the Bible that you can use with confidence. Now, I would say that if, that if you find the King James Version just a little challenging, and you might because of the way the English language read in those days, and it's not quite as easy for us to 
to plow our way through that. Then take a look at the New King James. It's much more accessible, and the language is not quite as, shall we say, stiff. And I think you might get a lot out of that, so don't hesitate to, to check out the New King James Version. Number seven is the, the Spanish translation I mentioned earlier, and, it, and I don't know if I can pronounce it correctly, the Reina Valera translation, or RV. Uh, that's all I know about it. As I can see the name, and I know it's a Spanish translation, I can't help you with whether that's a good one or not. It must be for it to be number seven on the list. That was kind of interesting. Number eight is the New International Reader's Version. Now, that's a, a version of the NIV, the New International Version. It's a, an easier-to-read version. The English is a little bit more basic. Kids might do better starting out with that English translation than one of the others. None of them are at a terribly high reading level. Some, some of them are more than others. But if you're challenged with reading, check out that one, the New International Reader's Version. I think you might benefit from that. Number nine on the list is the New Revised Standard Version, or NRSV, New Revised Standard Version. Not a a nearly as widely used English translation, but it's often used in the academic community. It is a good English translation. I've been using for the last few months since I got a copy of it, the new Revised Standard Version updated edition. I find it very accessible. I like it. It's been very useful. It uses some different ways of describing things that I might have been used to hearing a little different way. And, and for me, that's helpful because it causes me to think through what I have come to conclude about a, a particular verse or expression. So I like that. And you might want to consider that. You don't have to do it because I like it. It's just another, it's another one that's available to you. And I would encourage you to check these out and find the one that you will find useful and helpful, the one that you will actually use. That's the key, isn't it? Of course it is. And then number 10 is the New American Standard Bible, or NASB. And it has an updated edition as well. You might look for that one rather than the previous one. Either one I'm sure you'd benefit from. But from time to time, these groups put together an updated edition. We've learned something about language or perhaps from archaeology that helps clarify something. And so those updates are included in, in the newer editions. And you might find that useful. Uh, years ago, I used the New American Standard Bible all the time. Um, I can't really explain why I moved to some other ones, but I have. And I might go back and take a look at that updated edition sometime. I'm not against that. It's just you, you, you tend to use the ones that, that help you. And these others have helped me a lot, and I've had them available. I just haven't pursued the other ones. There are some other ones that I use a lot because of the notes in them and, and so forth. So... The bottom line still is this. I haven't got away from this, and I, and I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of this. The best translation is the one that you will read or listen to, and that will benefit you. The one that will help you hear from God, because that's the point, is hearing what God has to say to us. The point is not adopting a translation that you like because someone else likes it, and so you say, I must like it. I know there are occasionally churches that will adopt a translation and say this is the one we will use in our church just so they can have a standard translation. That's fine. Maybe your church does that. If so, probably a good idea for you to adopt that translation and, and attempt to use it profitably. 
But again, if it doesn't really help you on your own, you can use a different one. Just don't tell anyone. No, I don't imagine they would care. Some places might. Some people get real bent out of shape over one translation or another. As you can tell, I don't. I just want you to read the Bible, hear what God says, and then wait for it, and then do what God says. That's the real challenge. It's not so much that we have to figure out God. It's we need to do what we know about God. That's far more important. Don't worry about what you don't know or what you don't understand. You can figure stuff out. Somebody will come along and help you. But today, do what God is asking you to do. A whole lot of us struggle more with that than with anything else. We reluctantly do what God asks us to do, and that's just that's just not a good idea. We don't need to be reluctant about that. We need to do what God asks us to do. So here are the best-selling English translations. I'll go through the list one more time, and you pick one and make it yours, and maybe for this year you would like to, to challenge yourself to explore a new translation, and maybe you'll find it more helpful than you realize. But for, number one is New International Version. Number two, English Standard Version. Number three, New Living Translation. Number four, Christian Standard Bible. Number five, King James Version, or KJV, you'll hear that, or New King James Version, number six, or NKJV. Then there's the Reina Valera Translation, and forgive me, I'm not sure I pronounced that right. It's a Spanish translation. That one wouldn't help me because I don't understand Spanish. I had a little Spanish when I was in the seventh grade. Not even sure that what I remember is correct. Number eight, New International Reader's Version. Number nine, New Revised Standard Version or NRSV. And number 10, New American Standard Bible, NASB. Those are the top-selling English and one Spanish translation in 2022. Now, let's talk about something else that's been in the news just a little bit. And I I don't necessarily feel obligated to talk about every little thing that pops up. Although, from time to time, I think we probably ought to talk about more things because people don't often make the connections between what's popularly said and maybe what the Bible says. And it, it kind of concerns me that we just kind of assume certain things are so because we've heard them that way a, a lot or regularly or all the time. And one of those statements that, that really, I don't know when it started bothering me, but still bothers me, and I try not to talk about it too much, but here we are this time. But I have come to not really appreciate the statement, and, and I hope you're sitting down because some of you are going to think, what, when I say this? Well, hang on, I, I'm not trying to be uh, unnecessarily ornery. But one of the statements that I hear a lot, and often I challenge when it's in a conversation with a friend or somebody that I think is, is able to think through this with me, and, and partly I do that because maybe I've got it wrong and maybe they'll help me, but so far I'm convinced that we should be very careful about using, and, and I don't like the expression, the power of prayer. What? You're against prayer? You don't think there's benefit in praying? That's not what I said. What I said was I don't like the expression, the power of prayer. Now, a lot of us have noticed this phrase popping up over the, the incident with DeMar Hamlin, the football player. And you remember, it was quite striking that night when he had his cardiac arrest there on the football field. 
the instant response of his teammates and of the other team was to kneel and to pray. And they all gathered around and they prayed. And they prayed and they kept on praying until he was taken to the hospital. And I don't think they stopped praying even then. And people have been praying for him and giving thanks because the last I heard, he was doing quite well, really remarkably well. And we, all, we all, are, all are grateful for that, really glad about that. And so as a result of that, I've been seeing people talk about the power of prayer. Isn't it remarkable, the power of prayer? And I'm not sure exactly what they mean by that. Maybe they just mean it in kind of a straightforward statement that prayer is, is amazing. And isn't it remarkable what happens when we pray? They may mean that. Some people might mean that, wow, when so many people heard about this, and there were so many people praying, then something happened that wouldn't have happened if that many people hadn't been praying. Well, I don't find any place in the Bible that equates prayer and the number of people praying with a good outcome or the outcome that we hope for or pray for. I just don't see that. And I, and I caution people when they'll say, well, so many people are praying, it must mean that God's going to do something. Well, maybe, but maybe not. See, what I prefer is, isn't it remarkable to see the power of God at work? See, it's not, the power isn't the prayer, the power is in what God does. It seems to me that if we go around saying that there's power in prayer, or isn't it remarkable, the power of prayer, then what that does is that puts the power at our disposal because we pray. And I don't think that's at all what we want to believe. We want to believe that God is the power, not us. I simply make my request to God, and God is the one who makes the difference. God is the one who heals the sick, as in the case of Damar Hamlin. God is the one who rescues people from terrible situations. God is the one who has the power to change lives from, let's say, addiction to freedom. God is the one that does that. It's not the prayer that does it. It's the God that we serve and that we have confidence in. So when, when we pray, we need to have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God that he knows what to do, and we can trust him to do it. It's not that we pray and say, okay, we've got the power to make something different if we'll just pray a certain way, or if we'll just pray long enough or hard enough, or if we'll get enough people to pray. The power isn't in what we do. The power is in the graciousness of God to hear our prayers and to respond to us. And when he does what we have been praying for, that's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. We're grateful for that. When he doesn't, then we trust him because he gets to decide. It's not up to me. It's not up to somebody else what happens that I can trust God because he knows what I don't know. You know, often we assume we know everything about everything, and so therefore God must know what we know, and because we know everything about everything, then God must surely see that he needs to do it our way. Well, just in case you've forgotten, we don't know everything God knows. We don't see everything God sees. And as a result of that, we have to trust him with the outcomes, even when we might not be getting the outcome we would make our first choice. But we can trust God because he's God. And he loves us. He has given himself for us. He's held nothing back, no good thing from us. 
He's made a way for us to have a relationship with him, to have peace with him, to one day live forever with him. He's the one that did that. I didn't do that for myself. I didn't do that for you or anyone else. The power is not in my prayer, although I'm happy to pray for you. Prayed for someone this morning. Not at all reluctant to do that, but the power does not rest in my prayer. The power rests with God, and I trust him with that. No one wants to trust me with that kind of power. And frankly, no one wants to trust you with that kind of power. But there is a God that rules and reigns over everything we know and everything we can never know, and we can trust him to bring about the right kind of good things. And I can say with certainty, there have been some very important things in my life that I wanted God to do, and he did not do them. There are some important things to me today that I would like God to do, and I don't know if he's going to solve that problem the way I would like him to. I, some things I think he just might, some things I think, well, maybe not. But I do know that one day God will make all of the things right, all of the wrongs right. He will put everything as it's supposed to be. I do know that he is a God of justice and he deals justly with people and he deals mercifully with people and we can trust him and he has the power to do whatever he needs to do and whatever needs to happen for our benefit, for our good and to accomplish his purposes in the world. So maybe you'd like to join me, and I sure would welcome that, in reminding your friends that the power is not in the prayer, the power is in God. It's not about the power of prayer, it's about the power of God. Well, we've gone on about a number of things so far, and we've got more to get to, and I hope you'll stay with us. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And trust me, we'll be back. was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, 
you'll be ready for what's next. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the Cofix RX banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. We're back, and this is Faith Is, and I am Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, a real church with real people, and we are really glad you join us here on the program. We try to stretch each other and challenge each other to have faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we've been talking about several things this time, about uh, the Bible, about listening, about the power of God rather than the power of prayer. And I want to touch on one other thing that I want to encourage you to pay attention to and, and to watch for and to wait for and to, and to actually get some people to go see. I was privileged this last week invited to attend a pre-screening showing of a new movie that's coming out called Jesus Revolution. It's quite a fascinating movie. I didn't know what to expect. I try to go to these both to be supportive of the people here locally that that encourage that, but also to find out so I can know whether I want to recommend it to to my church. It seems like I wouldn't want to recommend a movie or anything else that I haven't checked out to know that, that I think it's a good experience for them. And, and Jesus Revolution is the real deal, and I want to encourage you to watch for it. It comes out on February 24th, so we've got a few weeks. I want you to, to mark your calendar, to plan to go. It's very important to, to support these kinds of movies, even if you think, well, I don't know if I really want to see this. This one is very well done. It is a compelling story. I'm not going to give the story away, not even close. But I can tell you it, it has many moving moments in this movie for all the right reasons. And I have every confidence you will benefit from this. Now, it's particularly interesting, and I didn't really know this was going to happen because I didn't know what the story was. I had no idea. I just heard about, just heard about it. A friend invited me, and, and so I went across the river to Fort Myers to the pre-screening last week. And there were a 1,000 people at this pre-screening, the biggest pre-screening I've ever attended. They, they made an extra effort to get people there. And the audience responded to this movie in, in remarkable ways, both during the showing and before and afterwards when they were talking about it. But it's, it's a story that, that talks about a movement of God that took place back in the late 60s and early 70s, I remember that movement. I didn't really know a lot about what was going on then. I knew a little bit. I know that some of the music that came out of that movement got my attention, and I remember driving to a concert or two when I was in high school, went from where I lived in Owensboro, Kentucky, over to Evansville, Indiana, to an arena over there where they had this concert. And I, I could not believe, it. and I was very interested in music in those days, still pretty interested in it. I could not believe there was music like this that, that was for the church, for Christians. And I, I just so much appreciated that. I didn't really realize what else had gone on at the time that was related to this whole movement of God. But I, I liked the music, and I remember being touched by that. 
and hearing some other stories later about some other things that God had done that were all part of what was kind of a revolution at the time. And the story as it unfolds is really, really interesting. It's really at the heart of of what God is doing. And it demonstrates in a big way that when God decides to move, he moves. And when God decides to move among people, he moves among people. Anyway, Jesus' revolution, I I dare not talk too much. Maybe I'll have a little more to say about it as we go along. But this is enough to get you to put it on your calendar, February 24th, plan to attend, take somebody with you. Maybe there's a group from your church. Maybe you have a Bible study group, and you could go all together. You could go watch the movie and then go afterwards and have a snack, have dessert, something. Well, you know how to do all that. You don't need my coaching for that. But I think you'd really enjoy the Jesus Revolution, and, and more than enjoy it, it will do something for you in, in a way you, you probably won't be expecting. And it's not just about entertainment. There's real heart and there's some real obvious things that God is doing in the way he uses this, this movie and will use this movie going forward. So check it out. Plan to go see it. I would sure appreciate you giving that some consideration. Well, let's take a look at the Bible because that's kind of what we do here. And we've been telling the story of Jesus at our church. This is the time of the year when we particularly do that. starts with Advent where we anticipate his birth. And then it continues through the story of his birth, what we call Christmas. And then it moves into this time of the year, which is the revelation of Jesus. And it's over these few weeks that we begin to see that Jesus is actually revealed to the people in quite interesting ways. And revealed so that we won't miss that Jesus is the one. And we will understand, at least in the beginning of of the story, what God is up to in sending Jesus. So we're going to pick up the story of Jesus, having gone through the anticipation of his birth and the anticipation of his second coming, which is all part of Advent, to Christmas, the celebration of of the, the birth of Jesus there in Bethlehem and all of the things that were related to that. We talked about the wise men and how they came and God revealed Jesus to them. And now we fast forward through the story. And, and as you know, none of these stories get told day by day. They speed up. And so we're speeding up to the story of Jesus' baptism. And in Matthew chapter 3, there are a few verses that talk about that. And so I want to read those and then talk about this kind of idea with baptism. Not so much baptism in in the way we think of it, in in the way we might participate in baptism, or what baptism means when we either baptize people or are baptized, but what is it that it means to us because Jesus was baptized. What is the meaning of Jesus' baptism? Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 from the New Revised Standard Version, updated edition. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now. For it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw God's Spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from the heavens said, This is my Son, the Beloved, 
with whom I am well pleased. Well, there's a lot going on here and a lot more than we can get to, but let's get to a little bit of it so that we can begin to understand what it means that Jesus was baptized. Now, the scene is is along the Jordan River. It, it would be east of Jerusalem, about 20 miles east of Jerusalem, if you're looking at the geography. It would be in a rather desolate area, based upon the descriptions we have here. And, and if you read the verses a little bit before this one, you'll discover that John was quite an interesting character. He dressed funny. He ate a funny diet. Uh, not a diet we would probably prefer. Probably not something we'd want to emulate in terms of our fashion sense. But really, it tells us that John was a type of Old Testament prophet. And that's consistent with our understanding of what the Old Testament prophets did. Now, we get awfully distracted by thinking about Old Testament prophets and predicting what will happen, and they did some of that. But much, even most of what they did was not about prediction. It was about telling the people how to get right and to stay right with God. And so here John is doing that. He's saying to the people, get ready for the coming of the Lord. Jesus is coming. He didn't say it in those exact words, but that was the idea. And John was this interesting character telling the people, get right with God. A pretty good thing for us to hear and do today. And if you know you're not right, what's keeping you from getting right? Because the very idea that you know you aren't right is evidence that God is talking to you and wants to get you right. Well, John preached a baptism of repentance, and they came confessing their sins. Now, it's very interesting to me that I look at this and I see baptism of repentance. And that seemed to be the focus of John's ministry. Well, what does repentance mean? We had quite an interesting conversation this week at our men's breakfast about the idea of repentance. And I keep saying, and people keep listening, I hope, that repentance isn't so much about feeling sorry for what you've done. There are things for which we are sorry. Every one of us has had that experience in life. Maybe you're having it right now. There are things that you have done that you're sorry you did or things that you wish you had done and you missed the opportunity and you're sorry about that. Well, repentance often involves some sense of being sorry, but primarily what repentance should be is a change so that we act differently going forward. Maybe you're sorry for a sin you committed. Well, repentance means you don't do it anymore. You knock it off and you stop doing that. And that's much more important in the concept of repentance than of being sorry. I'm glad you're sorry. hope you are. But even if you aren't sorry, you can change your life and do what's right. That's the key thing. So this was a baptism of repentance. And they came confessing their sins. And, and there was another group or two that was around there at that time. And, and by contrast, we should, we should think about them. Again, if you read earlier in the passage of, of Matthew chapter 3 than what I read, you'll read something about Pharisees and Sadducees coming out to see what John was up to. Now, as best we can tell, along about this time in the history of the Bible, there were, there were three groups that would have been operating here, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Now, they aren't specifically mentioned in this passage. 
John reminds us of the Essenes, and he may have been influenced by them. We don't know if he was a part of that group. We can't prove that. But his, his dress and his diet, uh, it, it just makes us think he might have been. And when the Pharisees came out, and this is another reason that this idea of repentance should be important to us, is John was kind of astounded, and he was pretty tough on those guys about why they had come out and who had warned them to come out and, and to get right with God. And he said that they should show the fruit of repentance. And see, there's another reason that we get this idea, and we need to get this idea in our heads, that, that repentance is about doing right, about a change of life. The fruit of repentance is about doing something different. We repent, so we're doing something different there by showing the fruit of repentance. Now, it's also interesting that, that John was so tough on the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we tend to think that the Pharisees were tough on the people, but that may not be a totally historically accurate view. The Essenes were the people that were really tough. They had really strict requirements. And the idea of all of these groups is they were trying to get the people to get right in the covenant, as to get right with God and to return to, restore the covenant relationship between God and his people. And that's very important in that. So they would say, here's how you do that. And so they would interpret what God said in his word, what we refer to as the law of God. They would interpret that and say to the people, here's what you do. And when you do it the way we say, then you're right with God. Well, the Essenes had their way and Sadducees had their way and the Pharisees had their way. It's a little bit like, uh, are you ready for this? It's a little bit like the various denominations today. One group has their way, and another group has their way, and another group has their way. There really isn't a huge amount of difference between the, the denominations. There are some differences, and they're important to everybody, and that's okay. But well, that's what happened in John's day. There were these different views. And, and the Pharisees, and maybe the reason John was so tough on them was because the Essenes, the earliest description we have of Pharisees, the Essenes describe them, it comes out of the Dead Sea Scrolls, as seekers of smooth things. Seekers of smooth things. In other words, the Essenes thought the Pharisees were trying to tell people an easy way to get right in the covenant as compared with their stricter requirements. So in today's language, we'd call the Pharisees the liberals. Well, that's kind of surprising. We don't think of them that way, but according to the Essenes, they were. So along comes Jesus into this environment, and the, the phrase that got my attention out of all of this is that, that Jesus said to John that, that he needed to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And I thought, that's interesting because that's what these groups were talking about. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and John was talking about they needed to get right with God. And Jesus comes along and says, we need to fulfill all righteousness. Now, we tend to think of righteousness in terms of our personal rights and wrongs. Well, and that's fine. That's a way to think about it. But in those days, they thought of the concept of righteousness as whether you were in the covenant or out of the covenant, whether you were living a life that reflected covenant faithfulness or you were living a life that did not reflect covenant faithfulness. And so John comes along, the Pharisees come along, the Sadducees come along, the Essenes come along, all telling the people, here's how to get right and to get back into the covenant. Now, Jesus comes along and says he needs to fulfill all righteousness. So what's he talking about? Well, just a couple things to think about. One is 
He was talking about alignment with the covenant, the same idea the rest of them were talking about, but he talked about it in different ways, and he was the correction that everybody needed. He's the correction you and I need. He's the example that you and I need. And so Jesus said he needed to fulfill all righteousness, and part of that was he needed to help people align with the covenant to serve God in the correct way, to fulfill the law. So he was trying to get people into the covenant. If a person was righteous in those days, that meant they were in the covenant. If they were unrighteous, they had violated some covenant expectation and were outside the covenant. And Jesus wanted to get people aligned with the covenant and in the covenant. He also came, and part of what he said here, fulfill all righteousness, is that he was coming to restore God's vision for the people. Now, we sometimes lose sight of that, but we shouldn't, that God's vision was for the people to live in a way that that was good for them, that was beneficial to them. God has always had a vision for the way people needed to have life and the way life was meant to be lived that was for our good. And so Jesus comes along, and he wanted to align people in the covenant. He came along to restore God's vision because as God himself, he could talk to people about what God thought, what God wanted, and what God was coming to do, because he was coming to do it. And the third thing, and this is really quite interesting, John had a baptism of repentance. I mentioned that earlier. Well, Jesus didn't come for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, because, no surprise to us, Jesus had not, never did, sin. So he didn't need a baptism for repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus came and he said to John he needed to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Well, if Jesus didn't need the same baptism the other people did, what kind of baptism was this about? Well, one of the key things that Jesus did by being baptized is he identified with the people. And he wanted them to understand that he was with them. Remember, Jesus was human and divine. And so he, by being baptized, he identified with the people and by example showed them how to walk with God and what to do to fulfill all righteousness. So he was, in a sense, putting his approval on John's baptism because people did need to repent. And while his baptism was not about repentance, It was about setting an example to say to people, yes, you need to understand, I identify with you, I understand, and I want you to have a baptism as well. Well, the result of the baptism was maybe the most important part about this. There's a lot of really interesting things, but but it's really quite quite fascinating. Jesus comes up after being baptized, and the heavens are torn open. And we read that and we say, okay, yeah, we've heard that story. The heavens open, the Holy Spirit comes down, and God speaks. Three things. But think about this. The heavens are torn open, and so there is now a connection between heaven and earth. Because the heavens are torn open, and through that connection from heaven, from God, comes the Holy Spirit that descends, that descends on Jesus remains on Jesus, based on the original language we can say, inhabits Jesus, doesn't just simply come down and is seen and then flies away. No, the Holy Spirit comes down and inhabits Jesus. He now has 
the Holy Spirit of God living in him. And then God speaks. God speaks from heaven. Now, that's really interesting. What's, what's he say? This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Now, there are all kinds of connections that people make between Old Testament and New Testament. They will see New Testament stories and make Old Testament connections. We did that already with saying that John was a type of Old Testament prophet. Well, some people call these Easter eggs when there are these things that connect us to the Old Testament. Easter eggs are something you find in video games and sometimes in movies, and I don't know much about them, but I know they exist. And if you want to know more about them, ask somebody who understands how they're used. They're meant to be a surprise in the context of a, of a game or of a movie. And here, this is a kind of Easter egg because it's a bit of a surprise because God speaks and he says something that we've heard before. Because God said to Abraham, when Abraham took his son Isaac, his only son, the son he loved, when he took him to Mount Moriah and was about to sacrifice him to God, God says, Abraham, stop. But that was after God said, take your son, your only son whom you love. That's the same kind of thing that God says here. The difference is God said to Abraham, stop. But Jesus became the sacrifice. He became the sacrifice that satisfied the penalty that we earned by our sins. Jesus became sin for us and satisfied the requirements of the law so that we could be made right by him taking the penalty that was rightfully deserved by all mankind. God didn't say stop at that point. So Jesus' initi- Jesus' baptism initiated his work in the world, his ministry that God sent him to do. And in a sense, when we are baptized, then that initiates our work in the kingdom of God as well. So we have these parallels. And one of the most interesting things about baptism that we sometimes overlook, because we know who Jesus is and we forget the significance of it, is that Jesus' baptism was a significant revelation to all the people that God had entered the world. In the same way, Jesus' birth and the star of Bethlehem and all that went with that was a revelation to the Gentiles, to the wise men, to the nations of the world that Jesus had come. Here, in ways that would have spoken volumes to those people because they were steeped in the history of God's people, Jesus is revealed to them as the Son of God, the Son God loves, and he came into the world that God loves. It's fascinating. Jesus' baptism has so many implications and so many connections for us that that we must not overlook them. But, you know, we think about baptism. As I studied this, I came across a question that a writer asked, and he, he asked the question, is baptism something God does or is it something we do? I've been thinking about that, and I still think about that a little bit. It's kind of a challenging question, and I like those kind of questions. But really, it's probably more about what God does, but it's definitely something we do. Because we have to take the initiative and present ourselves to be baptized. So in that sense, it's something we do. But in all of the conversations about baptism, the right way to the baptize, the wrong way, you have to be baptized by our group or it's not a valid baptism, all the things that go on. You have to be immersed. You have to be sprinkled, whatever it is. 
You have to be baptized at this time in your life or that time in your life for this reason or that reason or in this place or in that place. All these conversations go on, and that's fine. We can have those conversations. But today I'd like you to think about this. What if we approached baptism and began to recapture the idea that when a person is baptized, it's much more about what God has done for them than what they have done. It's much more about God coming and forgiving sins and making new. And what if we began to talk about baptism, not about something that we did and that we celebrate the fact that we were baptized, but what if we come to that and say, isn't it amazing that God, the righteous God, actually moved heaven and earth so that my sins, our sins, could be forgiven? And isn't it amazing that God welcomes me into his household and that God wants to make me new, wash me clean, and, and baptism demonstrates that? What might we think differently about baptism if it became more about what God has done and less about what we do and how we do it? I don't want to discourage you from having strong convictions about that. That's not at all. But I want you to consider, do we have stronger convictions about what God has done than about what we do or must do? Because I tell you today, it is amazing that God would reach to the likes of us, to the likes of me, and give us the opportunity to walk with him, to be his, to celebrate newness of life. And I invite you to stand amazed in the presence of Jesus and of what he's done for you and to revel in that and to brag on that much more than about ourselves. And do that this week, and we'll be back and talk some more next week. I'm Pastor Rick. <music>